Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. When we look at the Catechism and what it's teaching us regarding redemption, we know that the Lord is our Redeemer. He is the one who has secured our life. He's made us alive. As we take hold of Christ by faith, we know that we share in the distinct blessings of Christ. And so as we know this, this truth in what the Catechism has told us, we have faith in God, uh, we certainly believe that life is ours. And as we're walking through the Apostles' Creed, it's pointing out to us the significance that we have one God who is three persons. And each of these persons have their own uh, particular task or duties. And so in this Lord's Day, it's basically summarizing what we understand about the persons of the Godhead. And this is where I thought maybe going through 2 Corinthians, uh, the final greeting as Paul addresses a church that's a bit of a mess, and as Paul writes to this church a reminder of who they are as they're set apart in Christ. And so we can think that maybe this doctrine of the Trinity, while it's confusing and we don't fully understand it, is one of those doctrines that maybe it's just optional, we don't really need to talk about it, not really all that significant. And we find that as the Apostle Creed mentions it, it's not really an optional doctrine. In fact, if we make this something that's optional, we miss a lot of Christianity. In fact, we miss the whole religion. And so then we, we ask that question, an important question, why is it so significant that we worship a Trinitarian God? And so I want to walk through verse 14 as, as a launching point, where we have first, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we have the love of God. And lastly, we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Right there in the verse, I know I'm overly creative, uh, but that's what we're looking at right there as we divide this verse. So in terms of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've mentioned, this uh, Lord's Day is dividing up the persons of the Trinity according to their work. So we have God the Father, we have Jesus Christ the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And as we know, in terms of the Trinity, as we've covered this before in the Belgian Confession, not a single person of the Trinity has been created. All three eternity. Now the Catechism ascribes works to each of the persons in the Trinity. So again, we've talked about Jehovah Witnesses. A Jehovah Witness knocks on your door and says, oh, but it mentions Jesus Christ does this work, or Jesus Christ is this redemption. Therefore, Jesus Christ is a creation. Well, what the Catechism is teaching us is that in terms of how the persons of the Godhead function in time. So they're from eternity. They never set aside uh, their eternal nature and who they are in terms of their attributes. They're all equal in eternity. But in terms of how they work out their personhood or their authority in time, we see there's a covenant between the Father and the Son, and we find that there's a subordination in history. Now, if you can fully understand that, please explain it to me, because it's something that is beyond my comprehension, and I really just have to accept, 
what God reveals about himself. So if you do feel a little bit lost in this concept, I can assure you you're not alone. Uh, this is not easy stuff for us to grasp. But nevertheless, the catechism, I appreciate how it's deliberately trying to lay out the consistency of the three persons being from eternity and the persons having their work in time. That's the significance of this greeting as Paul writes to this church. And so, as we understand this greeting, it's important to put this greeting in the context of the letter. Because clearly the Apostle Paul is giving this greeting to the whole church. And I think this is important in something that's encouraging. Because we find that this is a church that doubts the apostolic or, or the authority of the Apostle Paul. They doubt that Paul's really legitimately called as an apostle. They're looking for the super apostles and they're saying that Paul doesn't fit their mold, therefore Paul's not the proper apostle. Now we can say, well, this is a Corinthian problem, uh, but it's not too long where we'll start dealing with election commercials and all that stuff. And when you, when you look at the news, a lot of times I remember these news reports, and it seems to be every election time, where you have someone that talks about the attributes, the physical attributes of each candidate, and which candidate looks more uh, powerful or has a greater presence or gives better speeches. And it's all about how they appear, all about the outward appearance rather than the substance of what they believe. And, and the, the point of calling that to your attention is this isn't just a church problem. It's a human problem, right? We're, we're not dealing with what is the substance, what, what's really going on, what's the essence of what's happening. And that's the struggle that's going on in Corinth. So it's not just a Christian struggle, it's a human struggle. Uh, Paul doesn't measure up to what we think he should be. We look at these super apostles and their prestige, and Paul needs to measure up to the super apostles. This is why Christ also goes to the cross. He's not significant enough. So as Paul writes this letter, and we have this conclusion here in chapter 13, where he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And again, there's that debate, which letter, what's he talking about? Is there another letter that's lost? The reality is, as Paul's recounting this, he's saying, listen, it's the third time I'm communicating with you. Now, as he brings these charges, he wants them to understand these charges need to be established, two or three witnesses. And then he goes on to say, listen, uh, this, who's ever stirring up this, this trouble, I'm not going to spare them. So if he comes again, he's taking off the kid gloves. Uh, he's asking them, okay, so you want proof that Christ is speaking in me. Paul wants them to understand that just because Paul, as they say, is uh, weak in person and strong in his writing. Uh, Paul wants them to understand the essence of the gospel. That's why he goes on in 3 and 4, verse 4, Christ is crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So it's important to understand that even Christ manifests this reality. Now, verse 5 is a verse that we can take out of context and become rather tyrannical if we're not careful. Because in verse 5 is where Paul really hits the Corinthian church with, with a pretty hard hit. And as he concludes and wraps up this letter, he says, listen, I want you to examine yourselves, and I want you to test to see if you're in the faith. This is pretty strong. And so when, when you hear these two words, if somebody's weak in conscience, you can say, well, I don't know if my good deeds will, will counteract my bad deeds. Well, they're not. 
That's the reality. They're not. What has Paul been saying prior to this? The essence of the examination is the gospel. Do you believe the apostolic gospel? Do you believe who Christ is? That he is a God-man who has entered history, who has died on the cross, and who has been raised to life. Do you find that the cross of Christ, however offensive it is, is the necessary means of redemption, or is it just a failure in the mission of a deranged man? There's some people who believe that. And that's really what determines where we stand. If we say, well, I think this is a mission of a deranged man, then you're not in Christ. If you say, no, I, I believe he is the God-man who has come to redeem, and I need that crucifixion and his work to find life, well, there we go. Now we've examined and we've seen that we are those who are in Christ. The testing then is asking ourselves, what is out of alignment with that profession? So if we take these two words, there's really an overlap in their statement or in their meaning. But they are two different words in the Greek. If we put this in our contemporary culture, it'd be along the lines of a manufacturer saying, this is our product, this steel, this aluminum, this nylon, whatever, we have tested it, and we say it can withstand X amount of wear or X amount of force before it breaks. So that's the claim. So that would be the gospel claim. The testing then is when you take this actual product and you say, okay, well, this is what you claim. Let's see how it measures up. Let's see if it really does what you say it's doing. So that's where you actually take it, you, you run it through its tests, and you see what's going on. That's the force of what Paul's saying with us, okay? So you profess, you have Christ, you know what Christ has done. You say, I believe Christ is my redeemer, I believe he's my savior. That's, that's what I believe, this is what God has claimed in his gospel. These are the benefits. The testing then is, okay, what in my life is not in alignment and consistent with who I am in Christ. And so when Paul's saying that, that you're testing yourself and you're seeing where, where you're struggling, this isn't necessarily that you're out of Christ. Because now your, your whole testimony is, how am I living to the honor and glory of the Melchizedekian priest? How, how am I uh, seeking to live out of gratitude for him if I really believe he's my Lord and Redeemer, as is claimed, as the gospel states? Now, how am I doing this? So Paul's saying, as we examine ourselves, certainly, you know, Paul knows he's got his struggles and his issues, but he says, overall, why am I serving the church? Why am I dying to self? Because as I test my conscience, I understand the examination of the claim of God is true. I do this for Christ. I'm called as his apostle. And so he's saying to the church, believe my words. I'm not coming to the church trying to deceive anyone. And so believe the apostolic gospel because that is life. So that's what Paul is saying, building this on the promises of Christ. So when you have this examining and this test, again, somebody throws this at you, you're weak in conscience, having a bad day, it can throw you in a tailspin. But when you understand the intention of these words, you understand, no, I am in Christ. This is my profession. This is what God has revealed of Christ. And I desire to live for him out of gratitude. Here's where I need to grow. And I desire to grow and conform to him. 
So now in terms of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, as Paul communicates this um, in his greeting as he closes this letter, the intention that, that people may have is that Christ is weak. Christ is a failure, as I've mentioned. Some individuals will, will lay out for you, no, Christ was a deranged individual who had this ideal that people were going to follow him, and he ended up on the cross. The Apostle Paul is saying that was not a failed mission. That was the intention of God. The essence of the gospel goes back to that very origin story of, of Israel, where you have Jacob limping. That's a very important understanding of what the gospel is, finding strength in weakness, not relying on self, relying on Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is laying out here. We need to rely on Christ. Because notice what Christ confers in this greeting in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this grace in Paul's letters, it talks about thanksgiving, where we have a true thanksgiving, as this grace is translated as that. It can be a power where we consciously take hold of grace, desiring to conform as he uses it in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. So, so this grace that's given to us is this power from on high from God himself. 2 Corinthians 8, if you read that passage, Paul really walks through grace. We don't have time to really go through that passage in detail, but just sort of skimming through it. Verse 1, the grace that is given to the churches in Macedonia. So it's calling to our attention, a church doesn't become a church in and of itself. A church becomes a church by the grace of Christ. Verse 4, favor, it's favor, it's grace, showing the, the relief of the saints. So bearing one another's burdens, showing that graciousness. Verse 9, we became rich by his poverty. I mean, uh, so basically, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 summarizes what he's getting at with the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. That as Christ empties himself of his significance, entering history, taking on the flesh, manifesting his weakness in the cross, suffering to the Father, dying on the cross, that as he goes through this, we become rich. Christ is impoverished, we become wealthy. And we become wealthy in what sense? Again, we can say, oh, is this the health and wealth gospel? Does this mean that as I'm more faithful to God, I'm going to experience all the prestigious things of this age? Well, not necessarily. What it means is that because of Christ emptying himself and entering into the state of poverty, of weakness, of service, we gain the inheritance of heaven. The very thing that only Christ has the right to possess the inheritance of the Father is what is ours. So when he talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just unmerited favor, and that's certainly part of it. I think Meredith Klein is helpful where he says we should think of it as demerited favor. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. It's a favor we receive when we've done everything in our power to trash the Lord's house. We have trashed the place. And yet by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the riches and, and the fullness of his inheritance. This is what God has done in Christ. And so Paul, as an apostle who has witnessed a resurrected Christ, one who is weak in our presence is saying, listen, 
This is a message that's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel, his life, and his grace. This is a power from on high that is given to his church. And so the first part of this, we have to understand the call for us is placing our necks under Christ, bowing ourselves before Christ, understanding this examination, testing ourselves in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing it is Christ who has given us life. And so going on then to the Father, because he starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we move from Christ to the Father, which is where you can see the logic of what's going on. Father sends the Son to die. Christ dies, suffers, brings us into a relationship with the Father. We're no longer enemies, but now sons of the Most High, adopted as co-heirs with Christ Jesus. So we say, okay, What's the significance of the Father then, or, or of God? Well, what does that mean? <coughs> well, we find in the Catechism, it's telling us that the Father is the one who not only creates the world, but the Father is the one who basically gives us life. The Father is the one who, who confers the blessings of Christ, gives the blessings of Christ to his people. And we say, well, well, how do we know that? Well, notice here what he says about the Father. It's not just the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, or of God. Which he could do that, grammatically, that's, that's appropriate. He's free to do that. And we can so quickly miss or skip over the love of God. Because this is what moves God. It's his love. And when we hear this, we can say, well, see, this means that God is love. Everything about God is love. Uh, and, and we just have to understand that's, that's what it means. But is that really what, what Paul's teaching us? He's teaching us that the love of God is displayed to those in his church, normally, as God works through his church. We're not saying everyone necessarily in a church is saved. We talk about the visible, invisible church and these sorts of things. The Belgic Confession lays that out very well. But generally in terms of how the Apostle Paul applies it, He's talking about this working in the church. And it's important. Corinth is doubting. Paul is an apostle. When you start doubting an apostle, this is serious. Because you're actually saying that the apostolic gospel is not a real gospel. You're, you're, you're saying that I can stand above the apostolic word or the prophetic word. And I can evaluate whether what the apostle says is right or wrong. I do not see him as coming from Christ himself. That's where this church is struggling. How does Paul remind them? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The love of God. A call for them to understand what has moved God. So it's not that, that God is necessarily just love generally. But God manifests his love. He shows his love in the giving of Christ to his people. But what is this love? Because Paul mentions love also in this letter. It mentions in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, that we have Christ controls us. It's the love of God, the love of Christ, that is at work in us and manifested. And so this, this love, again, is not just God having some sentimental feeling on Valentine's Day or, or God having some moments where he just feels something towards us. This is something far more personal than that. It's, it's far more of understanding love as this commitment of God having this commitment to his people of working out his purpose. 
Paul himself speaks of how the love of God is what drives the apostles for the church. It's the love of God controls us, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. In other words, Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, I'm not writing this letter or visiting you because I want to be a grump. I'm just bored. I just, you know, want to get with you people and start arguing because I have nothing better to do with my time. Paul's saying, no, it's actually the love of God that moves me uh, to come here and do this and, and to do this ministry. And so Paul's not doing these things by his own initiative. Paul's not doing this for his own significance. As an apostle, he's conscious as to who fundamentally drives him. He is to bring the word of God to the congregation. And it's the word of God that we're studying even this evening, that we see how the apostolic word is so authoritative that it goes beyond the apostle Paul himself. These words are our words today. As they were true for Corinth, they are true for us. That's the beauty of the apostolic gospel. The love of God is still the very thing that is at work. When we talk about this, this love of God, we, we can say, well, how do I know in terms of this life that, that I'm worthy of God? Well, the answer to that is you're not worthy of God. That's what Paul's getting at. None of us are worthy of God's attention, God's affection, God's concern. That's something we have to come to grips with the reality of our redemption. When we trampled the Garden of Eden, we lost, we, we severed that relationship. It doesn't matter how much love we may have for God. We are the ones who have offended God. But when the Apostle Paul is saying the love of God is being shown toward us, this is profound. Why he begins with Christ. Why does he begin with Christ? Christ is the one who has been sacrificed. So as he pours out his wrath on his son who deserves eternal inheritance, he's the only one who deserves the inheritance of heaven is by the love of God, he has poured out his wrath on his son so that now the love of God can be manifested towards us, that we can be reconciled. It's not that God needs to reconcile himself to us. He needs to reconcile us to him. He can prescribe things we have to do, but as we've already gone through this, we can never work off the debt. And so God has taken care of the debt. So the apostle Paul wants us to understand this love of God is what has moved him to send his son, to send the apostles, to declare the promise of the gospel. Now this gets back then to that self-examination because again, people read 13 verse 5 and, and they kind of just lock up and say, man, I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I'm in the kingdom. When you look at verse 5 and you hear the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ empowers me, the love of God is what has moved me to God. God is the one who has come to me, brought me to him. I offended God. God paved the way so I can come into his presence knowing that everything that needs to be paid is paid. So back to this examination. This is what the gospel promises. If I take hold of Christ by faith, I am tuned in to God. This, this is the reality of it. Now I need to continually test myself, see what makes me tick. Am I moved and seeking to live out of gratitude for the glory of God? Notice this is not to see if I can attain his favor. This is not to see if I am worthy of his love, because I know I'm not. But it's rather understanding I do this because he has come to me. 
He has brought me to him, made me as an unworthy servant, a worthy servant, a co-heir with Christ Jesus by his grace and mercy. And so the reality of when Paul gives us greeting, we, we can skip over these things and say, well, why is this so profound? Because Paul's laying out how we draw near to this God, not by our works, not by our deeds, not by our actions, but in the power of the Most High, because he has chosen to have compassion and has been moved to act in that compassion so we can draw near to him, that this truly is a greeting from the Most High God coming to his people. So we have two persons of the Trinity then, Christ who manifests grace, God who shows his love. Now we move on and we find how this gets applied to us. Remember we talked about Calvin, that as long as Christ remains outside of us, he's of no benefit to us, as it has been summarized. And that's basically book three. In other words, if, if Christ dies on the cross and he's raised from the dead, but he exists on, on the heavenly plane and I'm walking on this earth, well then what benefit is it to me if Christ died and has been raised to life? If I'm here on this earth and he's in heaven, there's no point. But once we take hold of Christ by faith, now we know that Christ is our Christ. And so this is where the catechism tells us the Holy Spirit is our sanctification, the application of the blessings of Christ. Because again, I do not take hold of Christ by my initiative. I take hold of Christ because the Holy Spirit has regenerated me, given me new life. That's how one takes hold of Christ, by faith. That's not just for me, that's for all of us in terms of who we are in our Lord. So when we deal with, with the Holy Spirit, and we say the Holy Spirit applies the distinct blessings of Christ. And again, we want to emphasize distinct, because we don't want to confuse justification and sanctification, uh, because if we go back to 13 verse 5, this would make the examination and test rather treacherous. Uh, we would wonder if we're sanctified enough to be justified. And the answer is no, you're not. Uh, that's the answer, very quickly and very bluntly. Uh, the reality is when we understand these two distinct blessings, we say, no, I'm declared righteous. Now I conform out of gratitude and the power of the Spirit. But notice that as Paul communicates how the Spirit works, he uses a particular word. So again, he could just say the grace of Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And he could stop there. And that's, that's a true statement. It's by grace. We understand grace. We understand it's something we don't deserve. It's God who has shown mercy upon us. But notice the language he uses here. The fellowship. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Koinonia is a Greek word you've probably heard. All that means is fellowship. A communion. A uh, we think about the, the significance of how Paul uses this in his letter. We think of in, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 4 of where the church takes the offering and, and bears one another's burdens with the churches in Macedonia. Even though they're miles apart, they still share in the same fellowship. We think in 9 verse 13, uh, we have the joy of the cheerful giver. Again, that fellowship of one another, sharing one another's burdens is what he goes on to in, in chapter 9. 
And so this, this fellowship is seeing how not only we commune with God, but commune with one another as his people. And, and this is a rather profound thing. Uh, as we consider this uh, fellowship, we, we can see that maybe in the Greek, you know, some commentators may surprise you, split hairs over the grammar. Uh, some say that this is basically about the Holy Spirit sort of working this fellowship, or it's sort of the benefits of the fellowship. Uh, I agree with the commentator, says it's both. It's the Holy Spirit that's working this fellowship in us. Uh, it's a fellowship with one another. We share in the same Holy Spirit. That's what you find in Paul's letter, if you continue uh, to go through the different references, that we actually share with one another in the same Christ, the same spirit, the, the same gospel profession, the same apostolic prophetic word, if you will, you know, the word of God. And, and we all share in that. But it also communicates to us that we share in Christ Jesus. We share in the Father. We are joined to the living God. And so this is an important point because we can think, well, God's way up there in the most holy place. And this is where I think it's important as we read through Hebrews in the morning to understand that God is not just in some place in heaven meandering around, kind of waiting for time to come to an end where he can bring about the final battle. One of the things that I love Hebrews drives home is that while there's a temple for Israel and they love this temple, they understand that God communes with his people, and he did, and, and he used that building, and it's not necessarily a sinful building. It's a great thing. Now, again, people viewed it in idolatrous ways. They started worshiping the temple and not the God. But what Hebrews is driving home is that we are brought into the most holy place because of Christ Jesus. We're not merely brought into an earthly temple. We're brought into the most holy place where God is in all his glory. And so when Paul gives this greeting and he's saying we're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, he's saying the full glory of God is present within us. We are brought into him by his initiative. It's not that we bring God down. This is where it's so profound when Paul says, you know, in the Ephesians church in Ephesians 2, that we are seated with Christ Jesus. We don't always feel like that when we read the news and survey our day-to-day -day lives. But that's where Paul wants us to see ourselves, seated with Christ Jesus. And so it's not just that the Holy Spirit communicates grace. It's not just that the Holy Spirit communicates the love of God. He certainly does. And I don't want to minimize that in any way. He does. This is where these promises become real and part of who we are. But we can't minimize where Paul concludes this with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is with us all. And what does Paul fundamentally desire? Paul fundamentally desires that it's not just with those who show hospitality to Paul. It's not just with those who uh, have, you know, been baptized by the Apostle Paul. In fact, he, he says quite the opposite. But be with you all. And as he says this, it's his fundamental desire. 
We think of Aaron raising his hands at the end of the worship service, communicating to Israel who their God is. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying to a broken church who is on on the cusp of denying the apostolic authority of Paul. He's saying, this is what I want you to understand. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is present with you. The love of God is present with you. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you. God is not abstracted. God is not absent. God is walking with you. This is where it's so beautiful where he says, be with you all. It's Paul's fundamental wish. And when you think of the authority of the apostolic gospel, this isn't something that's just to the Corinthian church. This is Paul's wish for us today. Because this gospel message goes beyond Corinth and is still true today. So even in Belgrade, Montana, it's the Apostle Paul conferring this blessing upon us, this greeting of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the assurance that the promises of the gospel are still true. Because they are not grounded in us. They're not grounded in my belief. They're grounded in who God is, the Trinitarian God. And so when we ask that question, then why is this doctrine of the Trinity so important? I mean, after all, I myself confess, I cannot fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't fully understand it. I believe it. I think it's true. I think it's who God is. But at the same time, I don't fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. I can summarize it. And so why is this so important then? Because this identifies who God is. And at least in my mind, this is something that's difficult for man to make up. Because the reality is we we make up gods we can define, gods we can control, gods we can manipulate. But if we don't fully understand who this God is, doesn't this humble us and put us in a place of of marveling at his majesty? of recognizing who we are as men. You know, you think of Psalm 8. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, you think about how profound that is in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity. Who who am I that you care about me? Who am I that you even take note of my steps and all your majesty and who you are? That's what this communicates. And when you understand the Trinity working in time, you understand how it's the Father who has consciously chosen us. How is the father who has taken his son, who has never rebelled against him, never raised his voice, never disobeyed, and he pours out his wrath upon his son, his son willingly humbles himself, you know, and we've got to be careful how we say this, but as he humbles himself, what is Satan trying to do? Trying to rip the inheritance out of Christ's hand, trying to show that Christ is not able to do what Christ is claiming to do. He's trying to challenge that very claim. And yet Christ is triumphant, humbling himself, being exalted in the resurrection. Read John 17. Go through that and see the struggle of Christ as John writes that high priestly prayer. And then as we see that the Holy Spirit, God himself, communes within us in such a way that the great God of heaven who dwells in the most holy place where even the high priest could only enter the model but once a year, 
brings us and seats us with our Melchizedekian priest. When we understand the Trinitarian God in this way, it makes the gospel, our redemption, all that more glorious. And when we examine ourselves, when we test ourselves, we say, praise be to God that the gospel is true. May I continue to conform to your will. Let me consciously walk as one who is in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, bringing glory to the Most High God who has redeemed with purpose and definitive action so he has accomplished his will. Let us leave with that confidence. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.